Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the internationally renowned football journalist Ben Jacobs. Ben, a big warm welcome to the show. Great to be here, Connor. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to yourself. I mean, this has been a long time coming. I think at the <laughs> second or third time of asking. <laughs> I'm sort of disappointed because when you originally were kind enough to invite me, we were going to do it in Miami and I could have come on with a tan and now I'm back in Edinburgh at the time of recording. So you get the pale version of me. <laughs> I mean, we're speaking of me keeping my sanity. I suppose first let us begin. I'll turn the tables on you. How do you keep your sanity this time of year during the January transfer window? Well, I think the odd one about this window is it's relatively quiet and some could say that's sort of a return to normality. But given we had summer and January is always quieter than summers, but considering in that summer there was Saudi Arabia, there was Chelsea, there were quite a lot of new players and factors. And I think the feeling is that the Saudi market, Chelsea, Manchester United, these kind of clubs, big clubs or ambitious ones are going to move a bit less in January, which means that I can start 2024 with a bit more sanity. But I suppose more broadly, the work that you put into a window predominantly is actually before the window, because it's about developing those relationships very authentically and having personal connections that may or may not lead to information that you can use. I always sort of say to young journalists, if you want to do a window, then much like recruitment departments, you have to start before the window, because if you get a contact, that's not success the contact has to trust you and very rarely are they going to give away too much information if they don't know you so if you get that number or that email or that introduction in the window then it's unlikely that you're going to be able to gain too much from it and you have to be very genuine about it as well so if again you get a number and you can't get anything out of that number and you say okay i'll move on i'll try somebody else then one day that contact that perhaps you've discounted will be very useful to you. So I don't really look at windows as windows. And I also don't really look at contacts as people that you're just milking for information. I try and develop genuine relationships with anyone I can in the industry at all levels and areas with very little expectation as to who might be useful at any given time. And then the more you build, the more equipped you are to then cover a story should it break. And that keeps you sane. The flip side is that you've still got to get up at six in the morning. You've still got to go to bed at about one in the morning. And you are constantly on your phone, constantly drinking that extra one or maybe even three cups of coffee over the course of the window. But I don't mind January as much because it comes and goes. We're already a week in. It hasn't been too bad. And you can see the finish line with January, whereas with summer, you start to feel after about three or four weeks, yikes, there's still two months to go. So I prefer the January window to the summer window. And if it's anything like those Cuban coffees down in Miami, I wonder if you're healthy. <laughs> but um, I mean, naturally, you touched upon a few principles there that kind of speak to the endurability of your career and the, I suppose, the offset of luck. There's no luck there. It's all preparation, all methodically planned and detailed out. But it's been a career that's been going for 15, nigh on 20 years. And Ben, as his opening tradition on this show, could you please take us back through to the very start and your earliest football memory? Yeah, I mean, my earliest football memory away from a professional one was just going to Leicester with my dad. We were season ticket holders at the old Filbert Street 
And my dad's a dentist and he used to treat a Leicester goalkeeper, Carl Muggleton, along with a few other players. And I always used to think my dad was really cool at that point because he knew the footballers and he would apparently speak to them and get all of the information. Now, the adult brain in me thinks, how did he actually do that as a dentist with their mouth wide open and a bunch of appliances inside? But ultimately, he had that relationship and he was able to use that relationship when I was five to organize for me to be mascot for a reserve team game between Leicester and Notts County. And I met Carl and I had like a kickabout and it was actually better in many ways because mascots with these big games, they walk out collectively, they take their photo, they walk off, but this was a reserve team game. So I could pretty much do what I wanted. So we were on the pitch for ages. I was kicking the ball about, I was scoring a goal. I thought it was brilliant. There's probably only like, maximum a thousand people there and then I ran off back into the stands and I suppose from there I thought I want to get into football of course at that age you want to be a footballer but I was never good enough I was a left winger I made it actually to the Leicester School of Excellence as part of their summer camps and then when I was about maybe 11 or 12 I realized I wanted to go into broadcasting and part of that was actually local radio. I don't think that younger generations have this as much, but if you're supporting, especially a smaller team, then when they went away, all you had in the sort of 90s, early 2000s was local radio. So I would turn on BBC Radio Leicester and I would get sucked into this radio commentary and radio commentary is better for a broadcaster because you're the eyes and the ears. You're not an inconvenience. I think with TV, people feel like the commentator can say too much or cannot say something relevant or can say something obvious. But in radio, you have to describe everything. And if you stop talking, then that's that for the person that's listening. So you have to make it a spectacle. And one of my old bosses said that, that even if it's a nil-nil in radio, you can't be getting bored by it. You can't be slagging it off. You have to make it entertainment because you're part of it. And I loved that, the sort of theatre. So my dad, in conjunction with treating footballers, also used to do a dental phone-in on BBC Leicester. And he got me an in. And I went in and did about two years of work experience at quite a young age, answering phones, making tea. And BBC Leicester had like an uncanny knack of bringing through top broadcasters. So when I was there, I was working under people like Jeff Peters, who's now at TalkSport, Manish Basin, who's gone on to be a globally renowned broadcaster. They all came through BBC Leicester and I was kind of work experience at that point. So it helped me getting in. And all you really do at that point is kind of make tea and listen and learn and it was just before the digital age so as you learned to edit you were literally cutting things with razor blades and then taping them together so that was kind of fun and then about a year later it all went digital and I was kind of lucky I suppose because I was able to be one of the first to make that transition so I was very comfortable with digital and maybe some of the other people in the industry that had actually been there longer struggled to adapt because they'd done the other way for so many years. Then I went to uni and this was the advantage of the BBC really, that the connections you make in one station help you transition. And after Leicester, when I went to Oxford to study English at university, I was able to move from Leicester to Oxford 
based upon recommendations and do the same kind of job at university, still unpaid, but I have my BBC email and that gives you those internal connections. And then after university, I kind of got lucky, really. I know we said before, there's not much luck, but I do think this was a stroke of luck because Oxford was a station that is very atypical or was anyway and Oxford and Berkshire so the Reading area effectively if we're talking in football terms were all in Oxford and there were two studios right next to each other and the focus was always Oxford because at that point they were the bigger team so I kind of got lucky in the sense I got given the secondary team sometimes which was Reading and then over time Reading became bigger than Oxford so then after university this job came up in a local radio station outside of the BBC a commercial radio station that was owned by John Medeski so it was actually Reading's official station and they got promoted to the Premier League and I got offered this job as sports editor so suddenly out of nowhere I was doing Premier League radio commentary and that helps because you're rubbing shoulders with other journalists at a high caliber you're making connections and then from there, the rest is kind of history. I went on to Five Live. I worked for BN Sports in the Middle East, which was a fantastic experience because the World Cup was won. Then I moved to America and I ended up at CBS. And now I'm back as a freelancer. So we obviously met for SoccerX and event hosting, but I'm working for TalkSport doing Premier League commentary. And I'm also their Middle East correspondent as well, which has been relatively big because of what's happened in Saudi Arabia. And in addition to that, there's things like the transfer news that I do and any consultancy stuff on the side, which can be very exciting. You can't really talk about the consultancy too much because it's a more private aspect of what I do. But I find it fascinating when I get to go in with a client and help them transform a part of their business. It can be communications, it can be media training, it can be strategic, it can be digital, or sometimes with a client, it can be a kind of tender. It can be something that they're trying to bring to their business and maybe they need a specific area of expertise that I can help them with. And I think that's great because you go in, you do your job, you come out and you really feel like you've achieved something because unlike journalism where you're constantly working you get this opportunity with consultancy to have like a really defined period where you're judged on whether you succeed or you fail so it's almost like taking an exam in many ways and I find that really exciting because you know that you have to justify your external employment and you know that when you leave you have to leave that client better than where they started and that gives you a little bit of a thrill because you're almost a part of the story rather than covering the story and you know therefore there's more pressure on you because you're obviously working directly for somebody that's paying you and the expectation is they get a very tangible return in transfer news it's different i can find out a bit of information that's true this team are chasing after this player and it cannot happen but I've still added to the story, but the stakes are a little bit lower in that respect. So yeah, it's been a really diverse career so far. I'm enjoying it. And I think that for younger people listening, it's just really important to have that kind of focused goal as early as you can. And that means that as you go through school and university, you can hopefully try and get as much experience and as much contacts as possible. So then when you are in a position to enter the industry, you feel like you've got as much foundation as you possibly can. And that will obviously give you the best chance of succeeding. It seems to me as though, Ben, you know, obviously it's quite the rigorous apprenticeship and everything which has ensued since then. 
you know, it hasn't been by chance. And stories like the five-year-old mascot make up the essence of football. So for <laughs> me, I'm scribbling down here. It is really profound and incredible moments of consciousness for a 12, 13-year-old kid to have at that time, realizing that they want to capture the essence of those stories. The fact that you're still doing it all these years later. Would you say, just touching upon goals there at the end, would you be more process than outcome driven? Because that's what it seems to me just listening to you speak. Well, I think that you don't understand the process when you're young. So there is a sort of logic to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. And that's why I always encourage younger people that want to get in the industry to try as much as they can. And now anyway, the media courses at university are very good, both for undergrad and for masters. So they allow everybody, regardless of whether you want to be presenter, producer, editor, to try a bit of everything. And that skill set is really quite vital because if you want to be a presenter now, you can start, which I couldn't when I was 12, 13, 14 on TikTok or on X. But to do that, you need a little bit of presentation, you need a little bit of storytelling, you need a little bit of production, and you need a little bit of editing. So if you now can try a bit of everything and not worry too much about the process, then you can surprise yourself as well. And maybe there's something you didn't think you wanted to do that is very exciting. But I think having that end goal is important. And um, for me, the end goal was very selfish. I just thought it was really cool that the patients my dad treated were broadcasting on radio. So I went and hung out with them. And then I thought that it was really cool that I wasn't going to be a professional footballer, but they were right in the middle of the stands with a fun old school microphone and a duffel coat on shouting and screaming and then going down into the changing room afterwards and doing interviews. I was almost a bit starstruck by it. And I thought that's exactly what I want to do. So you don't have to have like a defined process, but you do have to, I think, have a, a clear goal. And then the irony of that clear goal is your path to it is unlikely to be linear. I know almost nobody in the industry that says when they're 18, let's say, I want to do this. I want to progress this way. I want to end up here. You might get to the end goal, but the path won't be straight. It will be squiggled if you like. Whereas I think if you want to be a lawyer, you know that you do law undergrad or you do law conversion, then you do training, you get your training contract. So from there, it can go in any direction, of course. But you know that first four, five, six years or however much it is of your education into your training contract, both academic and practical, is going to be taken care of. And sometimes that's nice because once you're on that path, you've got that bubble of feeling like I can't do anything more. I think young journalists get a bit more impatient because they're looking around at everyone else and they're thinking, why am I not doing this? Why am I not getting that opportunity? How can I be like this person? And the imitation part and the process part are normal. But as long as you've mind, you've got to back yourself and you've got to do it your own way. And it will never be, as I say, the straight line. So be prepared to put a process in place. Don't forget your end goal, but then be prepared to adapt when your process is thrown out of the window. And there is, I know we said before with the sort of window, there isn't luck if you like, but there's definitely luck or circumstance or opportunism within the actual employment aspect. But you increase your luck by putting in the hours. 
So it's all the things that people don't realize. As you said before, I started doing work experience when I was a teenager. I was unpaid until I was 18 years of age. I was losing money when I was at university because after I was at Oxford, <laughs> I was then also traveling to Northampton where I got given an opportunity. And I was losing money because I was having to drive there, drive back. I was getting nothing other than a BBC email, which I thought was valuable. And in those days, there was no real work experience schemes. There was no real guarantee of getting paid, but it was amazing experience. Then the luck came when there was a Rushton and Diamonds commentator who had done it for 30 odd years. And he had unfortunately some personal circumstances. And one day he just couldn't make a game. And I was literally the closest person to the stadium. I was in the BBC Northampton studio and I was the editor and I was due to run out and get coffee and McDonald's for the production staff. And about an hour before kickoff, there was a call saying, yikes, he's not going to be able to make it. And I was the closest person there. And I was the only person there that had done very basic broadcasting. So I got sent to do a full match commentary at one hour's notice. And then he never came back, unfortunately for him. But fortunately for me, they left me in that role. So suddenly I was full match commentating out of nowhere. And that's the luck aspect. But that luck doesn't happen if you didn't do the six years work experience, if you didn't forge the contacts, if you didn't decide to lose 20, 30 quid taking a train or a bus from Oxford to Northampton, if you didn't decide to lose sleep, if you didn't decide to lose a social engagement that you could have gone to at university that night. So there's all of these kind of aspects. And then from there, there were overnights I did, there were double shifts that I did. So when you sort of break through and you're young, people kind of think, how's that happened? And it's often that hard work that people don't realize. It's those overnights, it's those double shifts, it's those unpaid shifts. It's those missed social engagements. It's that working during the festive period. So you've got to put in the graft. And then, as I say, at some point, you'll get an opportunity. And you might call it luck. But if you actually look back, then you probably find that you've created your own luck by putting in that hard work. And your process will be thrown out the window because your luck might be something totally unexpected, slightly different to what you were thinking. It might take you to a different country, a different location, a different organization, and then you have to sort of readjust. But never forget that end goal, because as long as you've got that end goal, then five years in, 10 years in, 15 years in, you can hopefully get to where you want to be. It's inspiring to listen to, Ben. And, you know, it, it gets me thinking an awful lot too because, you know, I conflate that your rise with the ascent of optionality, be able that there's less options back then. It's like, do the hard work, otherwise you won't be able to forge that career in radio, broadcasting, paper, so on and so forth, where fast forward to the present day, you look at imitation and imposter syndrome is rife. And then, it, you know, equally in an age with a rapidly ever-evolving news cycle, I mean, how do you yourself as a journalist, Ben, optimize for getting a story right versus just getting it out there? Yeah, I think it depends who you're working for and it depends what kind of channels you're broadcasting on. But as a broad rule and a really important one, you need to be right, not first. Sometimes you'll be under pressure to try and be first. Sometimes you'll have exclusive information and you will want to get that exclusive information out there and then build and add to the story 
afterwards. But the basic training is if you're not confident in a story, you don't touch the story. And in transfer windows, we're always going to be in inverted commas wrong at times. But if you look back, it's not necessarily wrong so much as an evolving story. So if you choose to attack your story in blow by blow, which many journalists and outlets do, then you're following that roller coaster and a transfer window is inherently unreliable. So I'm not wrong if I say uh, players in advance talks with this club and then four days later, another club comes and hijacks it. That hijack only happened within those four days. So at the time I gave you the first piece of information, I'm right. But is that player, as I felt at that time, likely to go to that club? Probably not if there's then been a late hijack. So it's kind of about trusting your process and ignoring the noise, because if you put together your storytelling, then you will see the context and the accuracy. But if you only read the on social media, if you only read the headlines, if you only read the top lines, if you only read the feedback from fans that wanted a player and didn't get him, they'll start to turn around to you and question the validity of your information. So you need to be thick-skinned and you need to trust your process and you need to be right. And if you can be right and first, then absolutely. But you're never going to be right and first unless you build up the contacts and unless you attempt where possible to go to all sides. Because if you're covering, for example, Kylian Mbappe, we had this only last week. In the morning, Mbappe's rejected Real Madrid. At lunchtime in Spain, Real Madrid are not that fussed about getting any deal done at the moment. In the evening, Mbappe's agreed to join Real Madrid. The next morning, the Mbappe camp say there's no agreement. And this is the sort of games of the situation. And it's very easy for a young journalist in particular to develop any one of those contacts. So the first story could well have come from the Mbappe camp to try and generate interest, the rejection. A rejection is normally from an agent or or somebody trying to scare Real into more money or scare PSG into more money. Or, of course, it is just legit. And he is just exploring lots of different options and he hasn't decided. And then your acceptance story would, in likelihood, either come from the Mbappe camp or the Real camp or both camps. So if you run the first story that he's exploring options, how sure are you if you haven't gone to PSG, to Real Madrid, to Mbappe and to Premier League clubs and any other sources you can get? If you've run the agreement side, then you could have got that from Florentino Perez, potentially. But if you've not gone to somebody like Nasser Al-Khalifi or anybody close to him, how do you know what the PSG position is? How do you know that PSG won't counter as they did and say something along the lines of we're unaware of any agreement? So if in going to all of those sides, you need a bit more time, take more time and be braced for change regardless and put scrutiny on your sources regardless. The other key point in all of this, we had it with Messi too, is that you may develop a contact that's very senior, that is in the room for a discussion and that you like, and you may feel like what they tell you not only must be accurate because they're in the room and they're a direct source and you can't get any more senior than them, but you also may feel like if you're going to develop a relationship with them, if you challenge them or contradict them, it's going to be detrimental to that relationship. 
And it is a fine balance. But ultimately, we're not here as journalists to report, as sometimes people say, quote, what we're told. We're here to put scrutiny on everyone and balance and then put out a story. So even if someone in the room tells you something and you think, I trust them, you still should endeavor to put a bit of scrutiny on that from the other side before you put it out. And the advantage of being five years in, 10 years in, is you start to understand who's let you down in the past, who's less reliable, who's very reliable, because then you do get a bit more peace of mind. I'm not saying you can cut corners, but if you've got a 20-year relationship with someone and they've always been accurate in what they've told you based on hindsight, if they're in the room and they tell you something, you can obviously think, I trust this person. Whereas if someone else is in the room and they're hit and miss, you start to think, maybe I'm being misled here. And a big transfer like Mbappe, there's always a risk of that. One like Messi, there's a risk of that as well. So I think that it's just important to be right. And it's important to recover if you are burned. And the best way of recovering is to have that foundational process of, did I follow the story right? Because we all are going to get a bit burned. I'll give you an example, because I think journalists need to hold up their hands when they say something and it changes and it can change very quickly. And I think journalists need to explain the context because again, you're not, as people love to sometimes point out wrong, so much as a story changed. But if it changes really quickly and you choose to tell the blow by blow, then you get a lot of engagement and you get a lot of clicks and people like it because they feel like you're an immediate and reliable source. But sometimes things will U-turn and change. And I had that, for example, with Jordan Henderson when he joined Al Ittifak in the morning. Henderson trained at Liverpool and he spoke to the Liverpool hierarchy and he said that he was staying. And I went to a source close to the player. I went to a source close to Al Ittifak and I went to four different people within the Liverpool hierarchy. And every single source said the same, that Henderson is staying and he's looking forwards and they think that that's it. There's a line under it. And then five hours later, I get a call from an Alitifact source saying, you're never going to believe this, but we've basically doubled our offer because the Ministry of Sport have given us twice as much money now and we've doubled our offer. And you know what? Even though he said no, he's thinking about it now, which would strongly imply that money is a factor in this move for Henderson to Alitifact. And then by the evening, you go back to Liverpool and they say, well based on our conversations with him this morning, we were 100% sure that he was staying, but now we're not so sure because he's not getting back to us. And then when I went to those close to Henderson, it was, I'm leaning actually, you know, towards trying this Saudi adventure because it's Gerard and I'm going to be playing every week. And by the next morning, he had an agreement with Alitifag. Victor Oseman said in conversations that he rejected once, he rejected twice, he rejected three times, all in the space of about two weeks. And by the third offer, he was really, really tempted, even though the first one was a hard no. So that's an unfortunate situation where all people remember is you saying, Henderson's not going, because I was confident in that at the time, and it was accurate at the time, but it changed within 24 hours. But do I feel like I did my job badly? No, I just feel like it was an extraordinary circumstance where things change very quickly. 
And I ended up adding to the story by pointing out when he accepted that he rejected the first offer, which is now common knowledge. So again, if you're like a young journalist listening, the key in all of this is process. You're going to be right. You're going to be wrong. You're going to be first. You're going to be last. But if more often than not, you're right. And every time you feel like you had a solid foundational process, then whatever happens, you can feel like you're doing your job. As soon as you cut corners, you stand a chance of getting burned. Yeah, trust the process and ignore the noise. Exactly what you spoke about earlier on, Ben. And I mean, how do you personally cope with a rise in fame online? I mean, you're followed by over 400,000 people last time I've counted on X. You're, you wear this vehicle, albeit a very, very, very reliable vehicle for passing on the message. Are you able to separate yourself emotionally from the story and connotations around the story is being purported? Yeah, I think so, because we're not sort of talking about political stories or things that matter. I mean, I know it matters to fans and people always sort of joke that football doesn't just matter. It's a religion. It's essential. It's integral. So yeah, to the fans, it's important, but you have to have that work-life balance and you have to remember that this is only a transfer window. It will come and it will go. And there's like a false hype in many ways. At the time we're recording this, Radu Dragerson is on the brink of moving to Spurs. There's a late buy-in offer that could complicate things, but the feeling is from sources that Dragerson stands a very strong chance of going to Spurs. And there's a big hype, you know, online around, as you say, this following that's grown announce Dragerson, is it done? And you think to yourself, hand on heart, how many Spurs fans, how many Bayern fans had ever heard of Radu Dragerson three weeks ago? Probably 10% at best. How many have seen him play a full 90 minutes? How many are aware of his attributes? But social media gets sucked into this. We need him. We're going to get him. There's a lot of competition. He must be good. Bayern are coming in. Now I'm even more invested in the transfer. So it creates this buzz and it creates and it creates this bond, I think, between fan bases, whether within, say, the Spurs community or rival fan bases that want to have banter or fan bases and journalists. And I think the important thing is basically to develop a relationship with the fan bases, which is why I do a lot of podcasts and I try and engage as much as I can so they understand you and so they hear the full context and so hopefully they grow to trust you. But at the same time, that social media isn't everything. So I have that following on my personal handle, but I'm still ultimately first and foremost a broadcaster. I'm a football commentator. I'm an on-air reporter for television and for radio. So my primary concern is to do that job. And part of the reason why I like radio is the anonymity. Nobody's seeing you with the microphone. Nobody's speaking to you during the broadcast. You do your thing, you go home. It's very easy with radio to have anonymity because you're talking to so many people, but you're not right there in front of them. So then when you're done, you could actually walk by somebody that loves your work and they could have no idea what you look like in radio. And that's kind of quite fun. And it allows you to separate your work and your life balance. Whereas obviously, although there is anonymity for some on social media, there isn't for me. 
And it can be quite frustrating getting a big influx of comments, getting people praising you, but questioning you, getting people constantly asking you questions, getting people DMing you, getting people expecting you to be on call 24 seven. And you think, well, no, it's 9 p.m. I'm out to dinner. I'm going on a dog walk. I'm going to bed and binge watching the crown or whatever. Like we have lives. I think Fabrizio Romano is the only one that's somehow and incredibly capable of waking up at probably seven in the morning and going to bed at probably 6.59 in the morning and getting about one minute sleep and still looking suave and Italian and being brilliant. But for the rest of us mortal beings, we need sleep. We need a break. We need coffee. We need downtime. So I think that I handle it by just realizing that social media is not a reflection of reality. It's not a reflection of fan bases. And sometimes Manchester United takeover was a good example. I would say very early Ratcliffe was now leading because he changed from wanting majority and that was kind of dead to minority. And that was very much alive. And I was getting hammered left, right and center. Every single post, even non-Manchester United ones were getting hammered. Same way when I think some of the agencies said that Sheikh Jassim was entering into exclusive talks and I ran an exclusive that said nobody's going to be given exclusivity and that's in the terms of the deal. And again, everyone will say, but AP say different, but Reuters say different. And I'm like, well, I can only report what I know. In hindsight, it turns out that in that instance, I was correct. Although let's point out how brilliant AP and Reuters and all of these other outlets covering that story and every other story are. It was a small point, but it got picked up on for some reason because it was like me against an agency. And I got absolutely hammered for it constantly. And I trusted my process. And in that particular point in case, I was right. So you have to sort of realize that the trolls, the people attacking you, it's often nothing personal. They just want what's best for their team or they are actually bots and trolls, in which case there's no point in trying to have an argument with them. So you have to take a step back. You have to be professional and you have to trust your information. And if you do that, you can handle the storm that is social media. But if you get sucked into every comment, then you'll never get off your phone. And that's certainly not the life that I want. Ben, this one has been very, very illuminating for me today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, it's lifted the veil off your profession, which is the chief storytelling position of our wonderful sport. Just finally, before we go, what would be the one bit of key advice you'd have for those aspiring journalists or broadcasters listening to you today, wishing to thread a similar path? I think because we touched on some bits of advice, I'll, I'll give a different piece, which is remember as a young prospective journalist, you're always at one advantage, which is the industry evolves, both from a contact point of view, owners, directors change, players, they come through. They're the same generation as a young journalist. It's arguably going to be harder when I turn 40, 50, 60 to get an affinity and a natural bond with an 18-year-old footballer that might become the next superstar. It's a lot easier if you're a young journalist. Maybe you went to school with them maybe you know them through friendship circles maybe you can get to know them because you've got something in common it's harder arguably as you get older because there's more distance people think as you get older you develop more contacts but maybe just maybe there becomes a generational gap and that's the same with technology as well so if you're a young journalist play to your strengths play to the fact that if you're at media school you're graduating in a class of maybe a hundred people that are all going to go off and become guest bookers, directors, producers. One day, 
they might be able to employ you. You're going to have got whatever the latest training is, the latest version of Premiere, the latest camera, the latest industry trends. So as we get things like social media changing, again, you have a situation where you might be better trained than I am in certain areas. And you might be exactly what a company is looking for. You might be the right age. You might be the right style. You might be the right training. And in addition to that, employers are always looking for a diverse array of hires in terms of ages, voices, backgrounds. So my advice is really don't go into the industry with an inferiority complex because of age or lack of experience. Go in with that process and that goal and make sure that you play on the fact that you're graduating with the very latest in everything. And it's a lot harder for an older journalist to transition to a new trend than it is for a younger one. So make sure that you play to that because it just might get you hired. And this has been an absolute pleasure of mine to record with you today. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. And once again, happy new year to everyone.